Section 38 of Lay Down Your Arms. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Lay Down Your Arms by Bertha von Suttner. Translated by Timothy Holmes. Chapter 9, Part 4. Now followed a time of fluctuating hopes and fears. Today it was peace is secure. Tomorrow, war inevitable. But persons were of the latter view. Not so much because the situation pointed to a bloody arbitrament, but on this account that if once the word war has been pronounced, there may be a good deal of debating one way and the other, but experience shows that the end always is war. The little invisible egg which contains the casus belli is brooded over so long that at last the monster creeps out of it. Daily did I note in the red volumes the phases of the varying strife, and thus I knew at that time, and still know today, how the eventful War of 66 was prepared, and how it broke out. Without these entries I might easily find myself in the same ignorance about this precise piece of history as most men are who live where history is being played out. The great majority of the people usually know nothing about why or how a war exists, they only see it coming for a certain time, and then it is there. And when it is there, people make no more inquiries about the petty interests and differences of opinion which brought it about, but are then only busied with the mighty events to which its progress gives birth. And when it is over at last, what one remembers chiefly are the terrors and losses we have personally experienced, the conquests and triumphs that have marked its course. But on the political grounds for its origin, no one wastes the thought. In the many works of history, which appear after every campaign, under the title of The War of the Year So-and-So Historically and Strategically Described, or something to that effect, all the old motives for the strife and all the tactical movements of the campaign in question are recounted, and anyone who takes an interest in such things can pick out the explanation from the literature in which it is wrapped up, but in the remembrance of the people. Such histories certainly do not live. Even of the feelings of hatred and enthusiasm, of embitterment and hope of victory, with which the whole population greets the commencement of the war, feelings expressed in the common, saying, this is a very popular war. Even of these feelings, all is wiped out after a year or two. On March 24th, Prussia issued a circular note in which he complained of the threatening preparations of Austria. Then why do we not disarm if we do not wish to threaten? Why? How can we? For on March 28th, you see it is enacted on the side of Prussia that the fortresses in Silesia and the two corps d'armée are to be put on a war footing. March 31st. Thank God, Austria declares that all the rumors in circulation about her secret preparations are false. It has never even entered into her head to attack Prussia, and on this she founds the demand that Prussia shall suspend her measures of warlike preparation. Prussia replies that she has not the remotest idea of attacking Austria, but that it has become compulsory, in consequence of the late preparations, to be prepared for attack. And so the responsive song of the two voices goes on without pause. My preparations are defensive. Your preparations are offensive. I must prepare because you are preparing. I am preparing because you prepare. Then let us prepare. Yes, 
let us go on preparing. The newspapers give the orchestral accompaniments to this duet. The leading articles revel in what is called conjectural politics. It was all poking up, baiting, bragging, slandering. Historical works on the Seven Years' War were published with the avowed intention of renewing the old enmity. Meanwhile, the exchanges of notes went on. In that of April 7, Austria again officially denied her preparations, but laid stress on an oral expression, said to have been used by Bismarck to Count Caroli, that it would be easy to disregard the Gastein Treaty. Must then the destiny of nations depend on anything that the two noble diplomatists may have said to one another, in more or less good humor about treaties? And what kind of treaties can those be, after all, whose contents remain dependent on the goodwill of the contracting parties, and are not assured by any higher court or arbitration? Prussia answered this note on April 15, that the charge was untrue, but she was obliged to persist in asserting that Austria had really made preparations on the frontier, and on this she founded the justification of her own preparations. If Austria were in earnest about not attacking, she would first disarm. To this, the Vienna cabinet replied, We will disarm on the 25th of this month, if Prussia promises to do the same on the following day. Prussia declared herself ready. What a breathing again. So then, in spite of all threatening signs, peace will be preserved. I noted this change joyfully in the Red Book. But prematurely. New complications arose. Austria declared that she could only disarm in the north, but not in the south at the same time, since she was threatened in that quarter by Italy. To which Prussia replied, If Austria does not disarm altogether, we shall also remain in a state of preparation. Now Italy expressed herself to the effect that it had never, in the faintest way, entered into her mind to attack Austria, but that after this last declaration she was under the necessity of at least making counter-preparations. And so this charming song of defense was now sung by three voices. I allowed myself to be again in a measure lulled to sleep by this melody. After such loud and repeated protestations, neither surely can attack and unless one of them attack, there can be no war. The principle that it is only defensive wars that can be justified has now taken such firm possession of the public conscience that surely no government can any more undertake an invasion of a neighboring country. And if none but mere defensive troops are ranged opposite each other, however threatening their armies are, however determined they may be to defend themselves to the knife, still, they cannot actually break the peace. What a delusion. Beside the offensive, there are, I find, many other ways of commencing hostilities. There are demands and interventions regarding some small third country and which have to be resisted as unfair. There are old treaties which are declared to be violated, and for the upholding of which recourse must be had to arms. And finally there is the European equilibrium, which would be endangered by the acquisition of power by one state or the other. And so energetic steps are demanded to prevent such acquisition. It is not avowed, but one of the most violent impulses to fight is the hate which has long been stirred up, and which at last presses on to the death-dealing combat as ardently and with the same natural force as long-cherished love to the life-giving embrace. 
events now began to tread on each other's heels. Austria declared for the Augustenberg so decisively that Prussia characterized it as a breach of the Gastein Treaty and discovered in that a plainly hostile intention, the consequence of which was that the preparations on both sides were carried to their highest point. And now Saxony also began to do the same. The excitement was universal and became more violent every day. War in sight, war in sight, was the announcement of every newspaper and every speech. I felt as if I were at sea and a storm approaching. The most hated and most reviled man in Europe, then, was called Bismarck. On May 7th, an attempt was made to assassinate him. Did Blind, the perpetrator of the deed, wish to avert this storm? And would he have averted it? I received letters from Prussia, from Aunt Cornelia, from which it seemed that in that country the war was anything but desired, while with us there prevailed universal enthusiasm for the idea of a war with Prussia, and we looked with pride on our million of picked soldiers. Inward contention reigned there. Bismarck was no less reviled and slandered in his own country than in ours. The report went that the land there would refuse to go out to the fraternal war, and it was said that Queen Augusta threw herself at her husband's feet to pray for peace. Oh, how glad should I have been to kneel at her side, and how gladly would I have hurried off all my sister-women, yes, all, to do the same. It is this and this alone that should be the effort of all women. Peace. Peace. Lay down your arms. If our beautiful Empress had also thrown herself at her husband's feet, and with tears and lifted hands had begged for disarmament? Who knows? Perhaps she did. Perhaps the emperor himself also wished to preserve peace. But the pressure proceeding from the councils and the speakers and the shouting and the writing was such as no one man, even on the throne, could stand against. End of section 38